Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about autism spectrum disorder and how to effectively communicate with people with autism during a forensic interview. Uh, So Scott, I know that you're recognized as a national, uh, actually international expert based on your work with uh, people with autism. So I think it'd be really helpful to our listeners if you just start by talking about autism a little bit. Sure. You know, if there's lots of different ways we can sort of define autism or talk about autism. And one of the definitions that I like that I think is particularly useful for forensic interviewers, for investigations, investigators and investigating, you know, uh, victims with autism, children, adolescents, adults, is the federal definition, the sort of educational definition. I I like it because there's things in it that I really don't like, and there's things in it that I think are, are really useful, but they're all useful. So it starts out with, uh, it's a developmental disability significantly affecting verbal and nonverbal communication. So what don't I like about that first part of the definition? So the this developmental disability, so it, that's a legal term, and that term gets misused a lot, and it gets conflated a lot with intellectual disability. In fact, we have intellectual developmental disabilities, IDD, used a lot, while in terms of national organizations, international organizations, and taxonomies. Using these terms, uh, qualifying for services is fine. I prefer not to use them when we're dealing sort of in this world, in our worlds, because it it can make people think about developmental disability and sort of lump people with autism in the broader intellectual disability. And autism's not an intellectual disability. Intellectual disability is intellectual disability. Hey, maybe we'll do a podcast on that. There you go. But autism is its own thing, right? So it does affect communication. And the other word I don't like is nonverbal. And we'll probably have a whole other section or session on uh, nonverbal, the, the, the problems with using that word, but basically on communication. And so that's good. So it's a disability that affects communication, uh, also social interaction. And then the definition goes on to say other associated behaviors include engagement in repetitive activities and stereotypes or stereotype movements. So... Um, that's cool because sometimes we can see uh, repetitive activities or stereotypes and things like hand flapping, toe walking, rocking, and all individuals with autism don't have all of these. But some of those are some of the characteristics we can see. And then the definition goes on to talk about resistance to environmental change or change in daily routines. And I know you have a plan of talking about that later uh, in terms of perseveration. But that's what we would call perseveration, this difficulty transitioning from one activity to the next. And perseveration also has another uh, part to it. It's uh, difficulties or and or not just difficulties with transitioning, but getting stuck on a particular topic uh, or something that's off topic. And I'll let you get into that a little bit later. And then the last part that I really like is this sort of unusual responses to sensory experiences. So what that's referring to is a lot of individuals with autism, a high percentage, have also a coexisting sensory integration disorder, sensory uh, dysregulation. And, and again, we could talk about that. That's probably a whole other podcast. So you have some of these characteristics that capture what autism is. And some of them that uh, go outside of this definition and are connected in some ways 
are going to be really important for the forensic interviewer. So if it pleases you, I will start talking about, you know, one feature that's not necessarily in the definition that you can, I'll have you jump in and talk about what does a forensic interviewer need to know about this? Sound All good? Right, sounds good. <clears throat> All right, perfect. So one of the things that you might see is that there's this, what we might say, this expressive, receptive, verbal disconnect is sort of how we talk about it in our trainings. And, and what we mean by that is we expect if, if you were to tell me something that was funny, you would expect me to either laugh or, or show sort of laughter or happiness on my face. Or if you were to tell me something sad, you would expect to see something sad on my face. Or if I was telling you something sad. What we may not see with some individuals with autism is that there may be this disconnect between what they're saying and how they're saying it. So if I was telling you something like, you know, I'm super excited about, you know, uh, what's coming tomorrow. I'm really excited. And about I can hear it in your voice that you're excited. You sound exactly. excited. That makes sense, right? Yeah, you can hear it in my voice. You can see it in my face versus, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about the activities we have planned tomorrow, where it doesn't seem like I'm excited about it because the look on my face, although you, know, you can just hear me right now, but the tone of my voice and how I'm coming across. So when that happens in our brains, we, we sort of say, especially in the context of, of abuse or neglect or, or, or the context of a possible crime, is that we sort of see that our brains see that as deceit, that if there's a disconnect between what somebody's saying and how they're saying it, they, they must be lying or they must be deceitful. So I kick it to you. So I think there's a couple of things for interviewers and investigative teams to really keep in mind. And the first is that we need to not make any assumptions about what that means. So if there is sort of a disconnect or if our brain, like you said, Scott, sort of automatically goes, ooh, that, you know, maybe that doesn't make sense to me, to make sure that if we know we're working with someone with autism, that we not make any assumptions about, um, you know, whether or not they're being forthcoming or whether they're being truthful, which are things in forensic interviews we shouldn't be assessing for anyway. Right. We're just there to, you know, to gather information, to provide an opportunity to, for someone to give us reliable information about something that did or didn't happen. So we have to sort of catch ourselves and make sure that we are not making assumptions about, you know, what that person means and really listening to the words that they say, because that with someone with autism is where we need to focus. And it's hard because like you said, every day in society, there is sort of expected responses, both from someone and what we think they expect from us. So for someone with autism, if we are sounding, you know, different than the words that we're saying, that's not something they're necessarily going to pick up on. And we shouldn't be making assumptions about how they're saying whatever it is that they're saying. Uh, excellent. And of course, that will vary in terms of where someone, you know, we talk about autism spectrum, where somebody is on this spectrum of, you know, from high support needs, not a lot of independence to all the way to very low support needs, lots of independence, lots of communication ability. So it's going to vary. So, you know, there's a saying that goes, and I stole this from somebody somewhere, but if, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. So again, it's important also to keep in mind is that when we're given some of these suggestions, it's not necessarily saying like all individuals with autism, you will see this disconnect. But when you do see it, I love what you said. I think that's really, really uh, uh, useful information. How about this one? Right. So another characteristic we see, and this one's connected to somewhat of that definition that I spoke about in terms of resistance to environment or change or change in daily routine. So individuals with autism, tend to be more rule governed, uh, not to be confused with being having obsessive compulsive disorder, that's something completely different, but being rule governed, liking things that are you know predictable, um, 
you know, the difficulty with, with things that are, uh, you know, outside of routine. So what say you? So for, uh, for interviewers and for, you know, child advocacy centers or any place really that's serving all kids um, or people, and then thinking about children and adults with autism spectrum disorder is how can we be sort of clear and predictable with the process? So what information could we give this individual ahead of time so they know what's coming, so they know what to expect from us, from the system, from the process, because the more we can be clear and predictable, the less likely they are going to be sort of to, you know, I don't like that resisting word, but resisting that change, right? When that transition comes. Less stressed. Yeah, that's better. So when, when that change or that transition comes, it'll happen more smoothly because they know what to expect. If they walk in the door and you say, okay, this is how today is going to go. We're going to do this and this and this, and you can sort of walk them through that ahead of time, then they'll know what to expect. And the same is true for really just being honest about, you know, who you are and what your role is and answering any questions that the person might have about what to expect and even offering that, hey, do you have any questions for me? Is there anything I can tell you that would be helpful for you to sort of understand what's going to happen here today? And I think that some of those you know, what seem sort of simple, but really they are those simple sort of graces and giving people the opportunity to know what's going to be happening during the portion of their life that they're spending with you. I think those are the things that can really help with um, making those transitions, like I said, just smoother and people with autism to feel more comfortable, you know, less stressed. And it also builds into that building rapport piece that I know we're going to talk about too. Yeah. And, and some of this is really normal, especially in young children. Um, you know, the, anybody who has uh, their own kids or has provided caregiving for kids when it's time for bed, it's difficult to go to a six-year-old and say, it's time for bed. Uh, so what do we do? We, we say, okay, 10 minutes to bedtime or five minutes to bedtime. So we give those warnings before those transitions. And some of those same strategies can, can work the same. And again, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting people like people with autism or adults, older adults or adolescents with autism are like six-year-olds, not in any way. But some of those same strategies that we use can be very effective. I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, when we talk about this training, one of the examples I often give is when I'm going to a new place, personally. First thing that I sometimes do, will Google it and look at the satellite image because if it's a building I've never been to before, when I get to that building, I want to know what it looks like. And I'm going to feel a sense of relief when I see it because it's a place that I've seen before and I'm going to know what the parking situation is. So You're again, creating so your own social story. <laughs> I am creating my own social we story. We could talk about social stories. We too. absolutely could, which is, uh, it's a great tool. It's developed by Carol Gray. Um, and you can, um, you know, go to her website and check out all about it. And one of the things that it talks about is how you can put a collection of pictures and words together about a new experience so that people can read it and see it and know what to expect in a new situation like going to a child advocacy center or they have social stories for all sorts of different new experiences. So that's the kind of thing, right, if we think about how we can apply it even to our own understanding and navigating of the world, that's something that I do that I find really helpful so I can sort of see how that translates when we're working with people with autism. Again, clear and predictable is important. I, I love it. I love it. That's. I think that's great. So what we're really talking about here is reducing stress. And there's actually research on this that individuals with autism have higher levels of cortisol in their systems than individuals without. Cortisol is a stress chemical. Cortisol sucks up serotonin and dopamine, which help us to feel safe and secure. So when we have that, and we know that individuals with more severe autism have higher levels of cortisol than individuals with less severe autism. So there's implications there for the forensic interviewer. Absolutely. So in trying to reduce that stress, we really need to make sure that we are establishing rapport, taking the time to 
spend with that individual to really establish that baseline, improve trust, and most importantly for this population, really reducing that anxiety, which is why we establish rapport with everybody, but especially with folks with autism. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Let's go with another uh, characteristic. Uh, I got two more for you. Okay. So one of the things that we know that individuals with autism, and, and again, there's going to be some nuances to this across the board, but in general, individuals with autism really do better uh, when we are, are more concrete and literal. So, you know what, I'll just leave it there. I, knew you're, I can see you're chomping at the bit to, get, to, to jump in here. So concrete and literal. I'm just going to throw that out there yeah, and, and run, roll with it. Concrete and literal in an interview. So I, um, we talk about this all the time in training, which is probably why Scott is seeing the look on my face um, that he's <laughs> seeing. Um, and you guys are sensing the anticipation in my voice, but uh, for, so it's so exciting for people with autism. It's just so important that we're concrete and literal in our communication and saying what we mean and meaning what we say and avoiding things like sarcasm and figurative language because they are found so much in our everyday life and in our everyday communication, it's hard sometimes for interviewers to even realize we're, we're not using concrete and literal language. So really just, you know, simplifying our, our sentences and our questions. And I don't mean that in a way that means that people with autism can't understand complicated things, but just the sense that we have to use the words that we mean to say and make sure that we're asking questions, you know, that we really intend to ask with this population. Oh, I'm going to give an example. So you got to give one too. I actually have a couple that I'm thinking of. One, I remember talking to, you know, we have things that are that can be fun too. I, I always share a story where I was conducting an assessment. I was it was a competency assessment, and I have this book that I use for establishing truth lies. And the, the book is yellow. The color of the book is yellow. And I'll hold it up and I'll say, uh, "So what's what color is this book?" And every, generally, people say yellow. And I'll say. Okay, so is that the truth? Yes. What if I said the book was red and people would say, no, that, what would that be? Would that be a lie? That would not be the truth. So I'm doing this. This was early on in my career. I'm doing this with an individual with autism. I said, what color is this book? He said, yellow. I said, great. Is, so could we say that that's the truth, that this is yellow? Yes. Well, what if I told you it was red? And he said, it could be red. And the look on my face is kind of what you're seeing <laughs> now is well, nobody told me what to say here. And what was interesting I figured out later was he took that literally read, R-E-A-D. Mm -hmm. yes, yes, the book could be red. Sure could. Not necessarily the color Not red. Not the color so red. You got one? I'm yeah. sure you do. So I was interviewing um, a young girl with autism, and we were talking about body parts. And I was doing an inquiry with her about touches that would be okay or not okay to her body parts. And the question I asked her was, what places are okay for someone to touch? And she looked at me confused, and she said, places? And I was like, you know what? That was a confusing question. Let me try again. Because I had intended to ask her about what body parts would be okay for someone to touch. So the, that's how simple and how easy it is for interviewers to really, you know, not be thinking about the words that we're saying because we know what we mean. So it's yeah. that concrete and literal language that we have to stick to every time, but particularly when we're talking with people with autism. Well, it's hard and it can be impactful. So it just made me think of another one where I was interviewing this, this young man and we were getting towards sort of the disclosure piece sort of the topic of concern and he was I could see he was getting upset so we switched to a neutral topic I said well I could see this is you know difficult for you let's talk about something I can't remember what we were talking about so but then when he had seemed to relax a little bit more and was less stressed I wanted to go back to what we were just talking about and where we were was he was he was in the, the locker room and he was on the bench with 
we'll just use the, the name Mike. He was on the bench with Mike. I said, okay, I want to go back to when you were sitting on the bench with Mike. And he started getting really upset. Don't make me go back there. Don't make me go back there. And I was like, oh, gosh. Right. Because back, he thought that literal, you meant that's right. literally go yeah. back to the let's, locker room where so, something had happened. Yeah. So moving forward, I try to remember to say, let's talk about, mm-hmm. you know, so it's hard. This is, this can come up. It's, it's, it's hard to do. So that's why we bring it up. I think, I think, uh, I'm, uh, I'm sure you have other stories, but I'll move on to one more. <laughs> yes, there's so many, there's so many. Yeah. I'll move on to another one. So this one comes up a lot in training too, and this idea of perseveration. And I mentioned it earlier in the definition of perseveration, difficulty transitioning from one thing to the next. And we talked a little bit about the strategy for that is set up uh, warning, set up transitions, give warnings. But perseveration also evidences itself a little bit differently. So what, what I've experienced, I know in practice and we talk about in training, is uh, when we know that someone with autism maybe engages in perseveration about a particular topic, that that will come up throughout the interview as well. So in the moment, if maybe they're feeling stressed or nervous about answering a particular question or maybe even you know not wanting to talk about something, that they may say you know whatever their topic of choice is to talk about instead. So um, you know they'll sort of switch topics very quickly, and if that happens, then it's usually uh, pretty effective to read direct to say, oh, thanks for telling me about that. And then, you know, go back to, oh, so, you know, do you remember what we were talking about before and bring them back to the conversation at hand? So I had a case with a, um, a, a adolescent female who talked a lot about Disney princesses. She knew everything about the Disney princesses. And I knew that ahead of time from her caregivers. And so I had asked her caregiver, I said, okay, so if she brings up Disney princesses, how do I redirect her? Do I need to acknowledge it? If I ignore her topic, will that make, you know, her perseverate more or less? So we were able to sort of talk about that. And it did, it came up in the interview and I was able to say to her, oh, thanks for telling me about that, acknowledged it. And then, you know, redirected her to the topic we were, we were on. So I think that that happens, um, you know, a lot and it presents differently like you've mentioned a couple times depending on the individual but knowing what the strategies are if they exist can be helpful and if not then just sort of using that redirecting tactic in the interview can be really helpful yeah it's, it's actually you know there's a lot of strategies that can be to varying degrees effective but redirecting can be really effective so i think that's awesome yeah and that's well, one i've used for sure Well, hopefully this information was uh, useful and helpful uh, for you. And thanks for listening. To learn more about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.